Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Greg Garneau, Chief Information Security Officer with the Marshfield Clinic Health System. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Greg, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here today, Anthony. Thank you. Excellent. Greg, can you tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. Thank you for uh, having me again. This is a, is a great opportunity for, uh, for me to talk a little bit about what we do here. So the Marshall Clinic Health System is an integrated health delivery organization located in central Wisconsin. Uh, we've been around for over 100 years. We were founded in 1916 as a, as a clinic, very much like Mayo or Cleveland Clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've now since gone into um, the acute and ambulatory as well. So we have around 60 clinics uh, in uh, central Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We have 11 hospitals. We have a research institute, a health insurance plan, uh, all of which fall under my purview as CISO. Aren't you lucky, right? Keeps me hopping every day. <laughs> Very good. But yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, dedicated to rural health care and serving underserved populations. So it's a, it's a really great mission uh, that we have here. Excellent. Very good. <clears throat> All right. Can you tell me about how you came to be where you are career-wise? What was the evolution of Greg Garneau winding up as a healthcare IT security expert? Well, you know, it's it's like most folks, you start out in, in IT at some point. I've been in IT since the mid-90s, um, starting, you know, really early on, turning wrenches, building computers, managing, you know, endpoints, that type of thing. Um, then moved into, you know, all four all types of engineering architecture, and then got into network security. Um, in the early 2000s, and then really got into cybersecurity and, and managing cybersecurity, which is almost 15 years now. So mm-hmm. uh, transitioned to working in uh, the Marshall Clinic Health System in 2015 and uh, took on the CISO role in 2016. <clears throat> so you started out sort of going down engineering architecture, I mean, is it is is it a proper way to think of of this kind of work as um, you might either be on the back end, so to speak, the infrastructure and architecture side, or you might be working on the user facing application side? Is that kind of a, a, a two paths that people can select from, and you chose sort of the back end path at that yeah, point? Yeah, I think I think at the time that's you know really what my focus was. I wanted to be more on the engineering side of the house, right, and mm-hmm. the systems side of the house. Uh, we see a lot of that. A lot of the folks on my team started out in that as well. But there's been, you know, I think, in my opinion, a shift um, given the um, the lack of, you know, talented cyber folks. You're not looking necessarily for a systems engineering background or, um, you know, an applications background. One of the things that we look for these days when we're looking for for staff is someone who has the, I call it the the attitude and the acumen, right? Um, if you have the the ability to learn, the the curiosity, the the desire to do this work, um, and the understanding of the concepts, we can turn anyone into a cybersecurity professional or warrior, as I like to say. Uh, I've heard that from other folks, from other CISOs, and it sounds like what's going on is the lack of workforce availability for the specific talents you're looking for. 
the messaging from CISOs out there is intended to stop scaring people away who may have been scared away because they didn't have the certifications and didn't have the background. And CISOs are saying, hey, we need you. We'll help you out if you have these things. And I've heard that also, that curiosity. You have to be sort of a problem solver, a curious person, want to learn, and right. and then I'll take you in and, and we can work with you. Does that sound right? Yeah, no, that's, I absolutely agree. And one of the things that we also focus on here is um, I call it building our bench. So we start in the colleges and universities in our uh, internship program and recruiting folks there. Um, in fact, we've, we've had a very successful uh, relationship with University of Wisconsin Stout, which is the, the state's only polytechnic university. And, and all of our IT um, from development and infrastructure to and cybersecurity, they have a very good cybersecurity program there. So we're we're also looking for talent there. It's it's one of the things that I think we all struggle with in this role is is the ability to find talented people who we can bring in and help us with our cyber defense and our mission. Let's talk a little bit more about that and let's see if we can give any advice to CISOs out there who are intrigued by this internship concept. Um, is there any, a um, couple questions, is there any advice you can give there to how, to how to move that forward? Any key people that the CISO would want to work with internally in the health system to get that moving? Um, and any other sort of advice for some a CISO who says, you know, I want to avail myself of, of something like this? So one of the things that we have done, and we've done it for a very long time here at the Marshall Clinic, is um, we understand the value of um, finding folks who live in the state of Wisconsin who want to come work here. And the interesting thing, pre-COVID, uh, we had an even harder sell, right, moving to central Wisconsin um, for a lot of folks coming straight out of college. That's not the desired state. You know, they all want to go to the big city and, and do all sorts of fun things. But, you know, we're, we're, we use, um, you know, best of breed tech, and that's another draw for these folks. Um, leadership has signed off. You need your leadership to really understand the need, right? And understand the need and understand your, your program and your message that, you know, we're going to continue to need to find talented folks. So we have to reach out in places we've really typically not done before. And starting in colleges and universities um, and getting folks introduced to the Marshall Clinic and our mission, uh, I think has been very helpful. Uh, you know, so you, so you need to have contacts with your local universities. You need to understand what they're teaching as well, right? So where are the programs in your state and the universities that align with what you're trying to accomplish? So, you know, computer science, if they have cybersecurity programs, I mean, that's always great too. Again, that um, the ability to get people early and start them in your program. So we typically bring juniors in. So we have two summers with them if they're really good. So then by the time they graduate, they'll have a really great understanding of our program. And if they wish to come to work for us, that's great. And we've already got trained students who now become trained professionals, or I mean, real professionals in our field. So is step one to for the, the CISO to go to HR and have a conversation with HR and say, listen, uh, I'm having a little trouble finding the talent I need. I know this is a route other people are going. What do you think about this? How can we move this forward? Sort of partner up with HR. I mean, you're not out there yourself calling colleges, right? I assume 
No, some sort of partnership with HR. Sure, there is right. So HR is definitely involved, and they 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 use they have a whole team of people who go out to colleges and universities for job fairs, right? Not just for IT, but nursing and and um, a lot of the other skilled trades that, that they have. So partner with HR, uh, ensure that you've got great buy-in from your own leadership. That's the first step. Then partner with HR and then start talking to, once HR identifies universities that might be of value, then start reaching out to the deans and the program directors at the different universities. And um, are, are you doing much of the direct outreach there or is that kind of you're giving HR what they need and you're, you're not really no. hands, hands in the pie there, or are you? No, I think it's important that you know who these folks are, mm-hmm. um, that, that the universities, you, you have to have a relationship with them. I think, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Not only can they help steer students to you, um, you as a, as a cybersecurity leader can also go to those universities and speak and okay. encourage students to get into the field and excite them about the opportunities um, that, that we have. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the students, you know, they're all about, hey, I want to do red team, blue team. I want to be a pen tester. I want to do all these mm-hmm. really cool and exciting things. Um, but you can also then, in talking to them, let them know that there's a whole host of other exciting cybersecurity uh, careers that you can have that actually serves a purpose and a benefit, a greater benefit, you know, like medical device security. Those right. Okay. I just want to make sure the, the the listeners understand that that they can't just make one call to HR and walk away. This is something you need to manage, get involved in, and sort of, yeah. uh, you know, put your arms around. Um, I've seen quite a few CISOs now uh, posting jobs on LinkedIn from their own personal profiles. So that seems to be a trend where, um, and again, the sentiment you touched on was expressed to me previously, which is, I know this stuff better than HR. I know what I'm looking for. I know what kind of profiles I want to see. So yeah, there's still the HR partnering, but they like going direct on their profile, putting it up on LinkedIn. If you have a pretty good network, that thing's going to get sort of uh, re, uh, reshared uh, over and over. So you really could get quite some significant exposure. Um, and again, this individual is saying, yeah, I'm willing to to be contacted directly, even initially. So it's there's a, a huge increased willingness to sort of get down in the weeds, so to speak, and do this work because I think it is so important. I mean, it's your people are all you have. So you you need to put the work in there. That's a good place to put in work, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, you know, people talk um, a lot these days about we have to work differently, right? And we have to start thinking outside the box. Well, there is no box. You just have to start thinking in ways you've never thought before because the need is so great to find staff and to bring people into your organization who can help you you know, do your work, do the work that's so vital uh, in, in ultimately protecting our patients and our system. So, you know, whatever means that we can to get the word out, to get the message out um, that, hey, we're looking for staff, we're looking for, for people to come and join our team. Uh, it doesn't mean you, you just don't have to start with HR. HR isn't your funnel, right? Mm-hmm. You can do lots of different things 
ultimately, you may have to go through HR, but if people are reaching out to you individually, then you can just direct them straight to, the, to your you know, company's website, start filling out forms, and then the process kicks off. Right, right. <clears throat> We're talking about um, the, the people shortage, the workforce shortage. There's tons of tools out there, right? A million tools. Uh, one of the sentiments I've heard expressed uh, from CISOs is, I don't need another tool that gives me information that I don't have sort of the the resources to follow up on, right? I don't want alert after alert. Yeah, your tool is going to give me great alerts. I don't have the time. I don't have the people to follow up on everything. Mm-hmm. Enter more managed services. So, mm-hmm. uh you know, I want the complete package. I don't want the tool because I may not have the people to to deal with it. But if you're talking about a tool with managed services wrapped around it where you're sort of doing the follow-up work, that's more interesting now. Is that true that that's something that's going on? Um, I believe it is true. Um, I certainly do. I, I know of others who have who have gone the managed services route. We have not. Um, we still... Um, we still are doing, you know, a lot of that work ourselves. Um, but I think there's a space for it. I think there's a spot for it in organizations. Um, the issue becomes one of cost, right? Cost is always a factor these days um, in determining what solutions, um, you know, or what service provider, managed service you're going to go with. I think one of the things that we have done uh, looking for tools uh, that we'll bring into our organization. It's not just, hey, give me another bright, shiny box. As you point out, that's gonna do all sorts of things that I really can't action on or operationalize. Mm-hmm. Right. So we look at solutions that um, bring in more automation, um, the less need for people to touch keyboards on it, right? It'll it'll funnel, you know, really important data to us, not just you know, alert, death by alert, right? So we mm-hmm. don't want all of that white noise. Um, I call them force multipliers, right? You bring in solutions that will um, act as uh, a force multiplier for your staff. It doesn't require you to go out and get extra FTE just to manage the that solution or some other thing. Right. So we've been doing a lot of that, uh, looking for efficiencies um, in solutions that we bring in to, that will give us efficiencies that we can, focus staff effort on more important operational or other security program initiatives, as opposed to just jumping at alert after alert. Mm-hmm. After. Right. Um, when we talk about managed services, the way you expressed it was was almost, it sounded like an all or nothing type thing. Is that what you meant to say? Or, or can you do small pieces of, of your operation and say, all right, this piece we're going to sort of outsource, but we're going to keep the other stuff. Oh, sure. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You can certainly, um, it's not a, an all or nothing proposition for sure. Um, and there are times, in fact, you know, we've been looking at solutions recently that um, would make sense for us to to partner with, uh, to help our organization. So I, I, I certainly believe there is, um, you know, opportunities across the board from complete managed service end to end to just, as you mentioned, just a a portion of what it is that you're doing for your business. I'm going to ask sort of an open-ended question, uh, see where you take it. What are uh, one or the two, one or two of the the most important trends that you are looking at, that you are trying to position your organization to be ready to handle? Um, 
What, so, so I guess that's the question there. What, what are you looking at? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, go it, ahead. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know of any CISO who I speak to on a regular basis who isn't concerned about business continuity, right? Um, and ensuring that, uh, you know, the, the dreaded ransomware that is, is out there um, and what that impact will be on your organization, right? What is the, what is the impact your organization? What are, what are your plans? What is your time to restore? All of those things, um, I know as an organization, we have spent a significant amount of time and effort ensuring that um, business continuity, downtime, um, you know, all of the things that people talk about, backups, you know, restoring, um, planning, you know, all of the things that um, people talk to us about in terms of good practice we have been, been looking at on that side of the house. And we've also spent a significant amount of time um, looking at medical device security and ensuring that that ecosystem um, is, is as safe as we can possibly make it. Um, you know, it's the days of these non-connected devices are way over, right? They've been over for years. So it's mm -hmm. now interconnected medical devices where each node is a potential threat, right? So anything connected to your network on the medical device side could be a problem. So we brought in tools that will help us manage that risk, identify devices that are you know, vulnerable, and then we work to remediate. So those are very, two very big issues that we've been dealing with. Now, you know, obviously throw a third one in there and I'm going to go back to is staffing. Mm. Um, you know, there is a, there's a real talent or out there. Um, cybersecurity folks are being offered significant salaries to jump from place to place. Uh, so talent retention and talent acquisition is in the top five of my risk areas. Well, let's talk a little bit before we go into the other two a little more. Let's talk a little bit about talent retention. Um, I mean, money's money, but let's take that off the table. You're going to pay people as well as you can. You're going to do what you can do. Uh, beyond that, uh, do you have any particular strategies you might recommend to other folks for how to keep your, your people happy? So one of the things that we do um, as an organization, we obviously have folks who are specialized in certain uh, aspects of our cybersecurity practice. But we also um, have um, times where we set aside for learning on different aspects. That's something that you don't necessarily do on your day-to-day -day basis, but um, we have members of the team talk about it and encourage others to get more involved. I think um, one of the things that we run into is some of the junior level members of the team, we need to mentor them. We need to encourage them to, to stay excited. And we need to to give them more responsibility. So I do I do that as well. So um, you give them projects uh, to complete that are not just um, you know throwaway projects. These are real and serious projects. So it's 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 encouraging folks to learn more. It's that curiosity factor I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and and also finding out what we we we've been doing these things with talent profiles. You know what is it that you want to do with your career? Right. And then you start aligning their desires to their career. And it's it's one of those things that that keep um, folks excited about the work. Um, and, and ultimately, you're going to get them to stay longer because they really enjoy what they do. And as you point out, the money part is the money part. But that's 
that's not the, the whole, that's not the whole motivating factor, the driving factor for most folks. And we also want to have a good working environment. You know, you want to have a very collegial, um, collaborative, team-focused, team-centered environment. So a couple of things there. Um, I think it's very, you know, the talent profiles you mentioned, finding out what they want to do is definitely the way to go because it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? I mean, you, you want to go this way, you want to go that, you want to move up, you don't want to move up, right? You want to deal with customers, you don't want to deal with customers. You want, you want to stay down there and just bang away on you. Okay, right? right. I want to make you happy. I mean, we don't want to get fixated on, oh, we got to get people out of their comfort zone. Everybody needs to get out of their comfort zone. Well, so that's not a recipe for making everybody happy, right? right. So I mean, oh, yeah. to go with what people want to do. So Sometimes, you know, we've had folks who just, you know, hood up, hands on keyboard, leave me alone. I'm going to do great things. I'm and, happy. And, and you want to throw them in front of a group to speak. And that doesn't work, right? We just, we just yeah. know that. And then they resign and you say, well, what's wrong with my talent retention program? <laughs> what just happened here? <laughs> what just happened here? Yeah. That's great. Um, and so you talk about it being a collegial environment. Um, everything isn't always roses. And one of the biggest things you, you, you learn about if you study leadership management, one of the biggest problems is a leader who doesn't remove a problem, right? You let someone who's not sort of good for the team remain. So if you want a collegial environment, you do your best to bring in those kind of folks. But if you have an issue, it has to be dealt with. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, I, I think that the thing, you know, you're not walking in every day expecting rainbows and butters. Right? <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's just not <laughs> No. Um, it, it's a it's a fast-paced world, constant change, you know, constant threats. People are, you know, we're driving hard. But when you build a cohesive team, right? It's a small, small unit cohesion kind of tactics that you need to bring into play. If there's a problem, you've got to deal with it quickly. So a problem's identified, action taken, the team understands, you know, that that we're back to a good state. Mm -hmm. so you have to address those. And and what's really good about the the work that we do and the, the folks that we have, um, I'm not the one who who has to. Um, I don't identify and have to deal with it sometimes. You know, the team, the leaders mm. on the team, you know, will say, hey, we've got a problem and I'll find out about it. And they've dealt with it in a way that makes perfect sense. But I, I like the the ability, you know, I, I kind of live by the ability of, um, you know, allowing people to make decisions, right? So distributed leadership kind of theory where um, we empower the team to make decisions. So also as it comes you know, as it relates to how the team interacts with one another, we let the, you know, the team leads often take the lead on, on helping to remediate. Obviously, if it becomes a much greater problem, I'll jump in um, and have in the past. I, I would say, and to, I, I'm guessing you're going to agree with this, I would say one of the biggest satisfactions you would get as a leader is when you find out after the fact that a problem had occurred and it had been resolved in a good way without your involvement at all. Is that not one of the greatest feelings at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, positive outcomes <laughs> without my involvement. Right. It, it, it makes you proud more than anything. Yes. Right. And, yes. it, and, it, and it's reaffirming that the folks that you brought on board are, are the ones, you know, you the, the reason you brought them on board, you were, you know, validated that they were right. great folks and, you know, you could count on. Them. 
And I'm thinking that that is perhaps messaging that that leaders should get out there to their teams. Like, hey, this is great if this happens. You don't have to tell me everything. I don't need to know everything. Like maybe after the fact when I mentioned something happened. But if it's handled without me, that's super. That's even better. Like they get they need to know that. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like I was saying, you have to. You have to have that culture of, you know, kind of decentralized leadership where you empower your folks on the team to make decisions, right? right? And even if it's a wrong decision, that's okay. You know, I'll be told about it, of course, and I'll have to come in and we'll have to resolve it. But that the ability to empower folks to make the decisions and and nine times out of 10, they're going to be the right decisions because... Um, they, you know, you know who you brought on board. So yeah, no, that's, those are the messages that's important that people realize you can't take on all of this yourself, right? It's just not possible. There's not enough time in the day and not enough bourbon in the bottle uh, (laughs) for you to be able to do that. So that's great. Uh, and as you mentioned, if they do make a mistake, uh, I think one of the more delicate parts of leadership is addressing that without making them gun shy, so to speak, that they don't want to make a decision again. Right. It's like, OK, I do have to address that. I, that I don't think this was handled perfectly, but I need to address it in a way that you that you don't not want to make a decision again. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, you can't you can't come in, you know, heavy handed you have to encourage them to own the mistake and fix the mistake. Right. And you can, those are coachable moments as a leader. Right. right? Right. And that's what you want to be able to do. Coach, not berate. Right. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the business continuity planning. One of the issues that I've really just drilled down on in my mind as an interesting area, almost a gray area is the CISO's role in interacting with clinical leaders to work through a scenario by which the organization or during which the organization has to go to paper. So how does that get worked through, thought through, game planned so that you, you, you explain to them, here's a scenario that could happen. We have a ransomware attack. Here's how it could go down. Here's some of the messaging that could happen. Things pop up on screens. It gets to IT. It winds up on my desk. We make a decision that we need to go offline. I'm going to call you. I'm going to message you. I need all your information. Here's what the message is going to say. You're going to be given possibly an hour warning or less or maybe, you know, and you need to think about what you're going to do at that point. Like, what is your role? in making sure that's been thought through on the other end so that you don't do your part and they go, what? And and they're not ready. So what are your thoughts there? So the first thing I would, I would say is this is not just an IT thing, right? First and foremost, um, we have obviously a very, very vital role in this from an IT and a CISO perspective. But the business, the leaders of the business, the clinical care leaders, they have to be engaged. And we're doing that now um, where we just we engage all of the leaders and we have tabletop exercises with leadership across the entire system we're having at each location. We have tabletop exercises about what exactly happens when boom happens, you know, Mm -hmm. boom occurs. What is your job? Right. 
Um, and we talk to them about what could happen, you know, the loss of all technology and you're back to paper, right? Stone age kind of stuff. And, and we've learned from a number of different events over the course of the last two and a half years that it's so important to get out in front of this early, left of boom, as they say, and, and make sure that when this happens, people know what their downtime procedures are because patient care is impacted, right? This is about patient safety. All of this really is. And the leaders need to understand where that, where that folder is, the binder is that has the procedures. Everybody in every department needs to understand what that is. It's a cultural shift that has to occur in an organization. It's not just, oh, okay, yeah, IT will fix it. It'll be back up in a couple hours. I think we all know ransomware events are, you know, they're significantly more existential. Mm -hmm. So um, it's partnership with the, the clinical side of the house. It's partnership with our emergency management folks, right? So we have a whole group of people involved in these, uh, in the planning and the exercising um, that isn't just IT, right? It's using what we learned from COVID in terms of having, um, emergency management or our our, um, our different committees that get turned up in the event of emergencies, right? So we're, we're kind of using some of the, the things that we learned there for the ransomware events and the planning. So it's not just an IT issue. It's not just a CISO looks at it, but it's everybody in the health system from the, the CEO on down needs to understand what these events actually are or you're actually back to paper charting. How do you read an x-ray? Or how do you, how do you, move, how do you move images? Well, you don't, right? It, it's all of those yeah. things. And the people in, in radiology need to understand that. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic in some of our first uh, exercises, the, the looks of shock and fear on the faces of the others. It, it, was, it was definitely eye-opening for them. Who is convening the exercises? Who, who's my concern, my concern for health systems is that it's not an IT problem. It's not a clinical problem. It's a bigger picture organizational problem, but I would suspect a lot of CEOs are not thinking about this. Maybe the emergency management uh, organization department, maybe they're the ones that need to sort of understand, but I don't even know if they understand real cyber outages and because they're probably thinking more hurricane, tornado, uh, right. that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, so I, I'm just afraid that it could be falling through the cracks in some places. Well, and, and, and you're absolutely right. It's not it's not um, something that people think about, right? Mm -hmm. Especially think about it in small rural uh, systems, right? The, the kind of systems that 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 we um, are around. They don't have the staff. They don't have necessarily the training to to do this or or they're they're worried more about operational issues and then all of a sudden you get hit with the ransomware event and you're you're done mm -hmm. um, we have taken the approach that it is a collaborative effort so it's it's the the cto it's the cio it's the the ceo and the entire c-suite on the health system side who has made this a priority Right. So you've got to start there and making it a priority. And then you're able to bring in all the various groups 
to have these exercises and, and surface this information to them. But it's a struggle. Um, you know, we're lucky in our organization that we've got complete buy-in. But to your point, there are lots of other organizations where people may not be taking this as seriously as they should or have the capacity to do it. Right. All right, Greg, listen, we're just about out of time. I just want to give you an opportunity for a final thought, final piece of advice. The way I, I frame it up is someone, picture someone in your position at a comparable sized health system. Um, what would your best piece of advice be for them in terms of, you know, this is something you found to work, an approach, a, a way to look at things or something that, that you would suggest they pursue? Well, you know, I think one of the things that, that we talk a lot about, and we, we spent a good time talking about it today, are the people that work with you. Um, your staff is the most valuable asset that you have, um, and it's important for you to continue to nurture good relations with them, uh, opportunities for them to grow, as well as bringing in new talent. Um, the, the, the threats that we face are not going away anytime soon. Um, so you need a dedicated quality group of people to assist you with your mission. Uh, so I would recommend reaching out to places you've never done before. Go to the universities, mm -hmm. go to the tech schools and, and start building those relationships. So you're not caught without having the staff you need to support your mission and protect your patients. Wonderful, Greg. Thanks so much for your time today. It was a wonderful interview. I appreciate it. Great visiting with you today, Anthony. Thank you.